Hello and welcome to episode 104 of the Implant Games Podcast. I'm your host, Chris Ginthy, and I've got a great show for you today. So no news this week, so we'll move right into our next topic. Uh, last week I talked a bit, or I think I unboxed on the camera, the HD RetroVision component cables for the Sega Genesis. Now, um, I did test these out uh, on the Sega Genesis, and I did use the big TV in the living room over there just to kind of give it a quick test to see how it performed, to see how it worked, to see if my TV could actually do it. Now, I don't remember if we, if I talked about this on the podcast a couple of years ago uh, when these cables were first announced. My initial fears uh, were that, one, a lot of HD TVs can't uh, accept 240p component or 240p video over component. And of course, uh, a majority of Sega Genesis games and Super Nintendo games uh, output 240p. Um, if you have like a PlayStation 2, for example, and you play uh, PlayStation 1 games using a component cable, that's a good way to test whether or not your TV can handle 240p over component. I believe you can also just hook composite video up to the green line, and if you get a picture, your TV can handle it. Now, my TV back here is old. I think it came out, I think it's 2008. Uh, it's a 50-inch Vizio from 2008. Uh, it has a great picture. Um, that don't really have any complaints there. Uh, it does accept a 240p signal over component, but of course it sees it as 480i, uh, which means there's a lot of inner lacing artifacts that should not exist, which is kind of annoying, um, but not the primary reason I bought the cable. Uh, I ju basically just tested it. It works. The colors are beautiful. Uh, it's very sharp, noticeably better than component or uh, composite video. Um, you know, no dot crawl or color bleeding and all those types of issues. Uh, but as I suspected this particular TV sees it as 480i. Uh, when I do review these cables, I'll go through every television I have in the house. So I have a smaller Vizio, I think a 42-inch Vizio in the bedroom. I have a cheap, like a 32-inch Dynex or something I got for free for buying a car. Uh, I really don't expect that to do anything with it. Who knows? Um, I believe Samsung televisions are known for uh, seeing 240p video and handling it correctly. Uh, I remember a long time ago hooking the Sega Saturn up to an old Samsung rear projector and like it saw it as a 240p video and it displayed a beautiful picture. So I've got a 26 inch widescreen CRT high def TV that uh, I'd like to test as well. And then that's kind of how we'll review that. Um, there are the only issue I had, at least with my Genesis, where there were light jail bars. Uh, jail bars, of course, being like those vertical strips of color that uh, shouldn't be shown. Now, I'm pretty lucky. My Genesis, I have a late uh, model two that uh, has the three quarter size motherboard. So the motherboard in size inside only fills about 75% of the case instead of 100% of the case. Uh, so that means <clears throat> generally speaking, it has great audio. A lot of model twos have some poor audio. Um, this has some, gr has great audio and a perfect picture. And then using my retro gaming cables.co.uk, um, SCART RGB cable, uh, gives me a perfect 
picture, to be quite honest with you. Uh, not a lot of noise in the dark gray or dark blue areas, which is something the Frame Meister has problems with, and uh, no jail bars whatsoever. I don't know how RetroGamingCables.co.uk achieves that, or if it's just a random luck with my cable in my Genesis, but uh, jail bars is something I've experienced in the past. Now, unfortunately, that RetroGamingCables.co.uk cable doesn't have a couple, I think three capacitors that are supposed to be on the red, the green, and the blue line. Uh, so that cable, uh, Too Quick Capri, uh, pointed me to an article where not all RGB cables are created equal. Some of them shortcut and don't put in a few things that they think it doesn't need. Um, and that is why that cable does not work with the Turbo Graphic or the DB Graphics Booster. TTP. Um, I did not test this yet with the HD RetroVision cable. Um, I'm going to wait till next month by a second Genesis 2 RGB cable uh, to complete all of the Turbo Graphics uh, stuff that I would like to accomplish. But the HD RetroVision cable it worked on my TV. Uh, again, my TV saw it as 480i, not the cable's fault. Uh, that is something you should expect when you are buying these component cables. It isn't going to be the same as buying a Framemeister or something like that. There are drawbacks but it's still uh, in my light testing a uh, very very solid product I'm gonna move next into some Q&A so hello's world says what do you work as just curious um, I have a very boring job a lot of youtubers have uh, if you like look at game sack or you look at my life in gaming uh, they have careers in video production I don't know if that's uh, in movies if that's like a local company that does you know commercials uh, you know for your local grocery store, things like that, um, radio, you know, whatever. I have no idea. I don't have an exciting job at all. I have a boring job where I sit in a cubicle for eight hours a day. And yeah, not very exciting, not very satisfying. Um, I do write all day long, so that's kind of nice. Um, but that's about the only skill that crosses over between these two things. So I'm not going to talk too much more about it. Um, I kind of work in a job where it wouldn't be beneficial to have my, <laughs> to have uh, the YouTube work that I do mix with whatever it is that I do do. So that's about as far as I'm going to go. But I am definitely envious of, the, of those guys, uh, you know, that get to, you know, do all of that for a living on top of having a, a side project on YouTube. So maybe I'll be able to work in reverse. Maybe my skills will get to the point where I can find a job doing some sort of uh, audio or video production production, um, or maybe I'll just never develop those skills and I'll always be an amateur. We shall see. Um, I did go to school for IT back in, I graduated in 2004 at a local tech school or community college, depending on where you are. Um, those might be called one of those things. So a tech school is what I call it. I think uh, it's more commonly known as a community college. So I do have an associate's degree. Um, <clears throat> I never found a job in IT. Uh, it was I just couldn't find one. Uh, even in the Green Bay area, which is about 100,000 people or a quarter million, uh, if you expand that out you know, to the whole area, there just was nothing for somebody fresh out of college. The skills that I had learned in school didn't exactly fit what employers needed. I got stuck working in a call center, and that's kind of what my career has been over the last uh, 12 years, uh, starting in a call center, working my way out of there, hating it, and then just starting all over somewhere else. So... 
Yeah, 2009, the fall of 2009, I did go back to school. I wanted to get another associate's degree in digital media. Uh, so that's when I first started learning how to use a camera, a camcorder, um, Photoshop, um, re- recording audio, things like that. Um, and then uh, in the spring of 2010, I couldn't sustain not working and going to school full time. Uh, so I started my current job, didn't go back to finish up that associate's degree, but uh, kind of got me started with at least the very, very basics of this sort of thing. So that's kind of my career in a nutshell. I've spent 12 years and I've never had a super satisfying job. All right, the next two questions are regarding uh, Aladdin for the Sega Genesis. This is uh, a game I've recommended uh, as a cheap game on this very uh, podcast, and uh, it's a game I recently reviewed pretty in-depth, um, about 3,000 words, 16-minute video, where I really uh, dove in. I played through the, I beat the game four times uh, for the review, um, really gathered my thoughts. I feel like i covered absolutely everything I possibly could in the most fair, objective way that I possibly could. Um, So that's where these questions, next two questions are coming from. So the first question comes from DGM Stuff. I don't personally think that trial and error... See, you don't need that that. I don't personally think trial and error is too bad in a platformer. For a one-time player, sure, but it rewards people who like the game and play through it multiple times, giving a sense of accomplishment when you bre- when you breeze through a level by memory. In the end, of course, it's a matter of preference, and there's no wrong side on that. Uh, so this was a common complaint uh, for the people that did complain, and you certainly didn't, you were very fair, uh, but a common theme from people that didn't particularly either agree or like my point of view uh, was trial and error. So I think Aladdin has a lot of cheap moments where you as the player have no shot at passing a certain part of the game without already knowing how it's supposed to be done. Um, This can work. Uh, There's a lot of, especially like a decade ago, uh, and plus one of my personal favorites and Super Meat Boy, a game I'm less than familiar with, both take that trial and error formula uh, and they do it in a much more modern way. Um, And that is shorter levels and unlimited continues. So, and plus there are levels that I spent an hour or two on and uh, it took me a long time to figure out the solution. Uh, But I wasn't punished unfairly by having to replay the first 50 levels when I couldn't get through it. And that, I think, is a problem in Aladdin. There are a lot of cheap moments where you zip line right into an enemy and take damage. There's nothing you can do to prevent that. That, That's not not particularly good. Uh, There's another section where a question mark pops up on the screen and you have to guess whether to go up or down. And if you get it wrong, you die. Um, That isn't very, to me, that isn't sound game design. Uh, Throwing a question on the screen and having to guess whether you go up or down is kind of lame. Um, So stuff like that I felt was very cheap and makes Aladdin feel like it's very much part of 1995. Um, So a few other notes I have on that. Um, One... Let's see here. I compare a lot of platformers to New Super Mario Bros. U, which, uh, in my opinion, is probably the most polished 2D side-scrolling platformer ever made, ever. Uh, 
if that's kind of reminds me of the original Mario games where it feels like every single platform, every single enemy is placed in a very specific spot and there is nothing just randomly thrown into the level. Um, and you can especially see that when you start watching speed runs, you can see what the developers and what the designers had in mind. Um, and when I go back and I play Aladdin or some of the other 2d platformers, some of the lesser platformers, you know, not the AAA titles from the time, uh, they don't always hold up, you know, to some Something in my mind like new Super Mario Brothers U. So that's kind of where I'm coming from. And I think most importantly, it should be okay to point out uh, when a game has aged. Hey, here's something that was done in this game back in 1993. You know, this isn't how we would do it in 2016 or 2015 or whatever the year may be. And I think that's okay. I, I don't think that pointing out flaws in an old Genesis game or an old NES game takes anything away from it. It you know, it was still a special game for a lot of people, but pretending that these games are perfect and flawless all the time, you know, I don't really think that's healthy either. I don't like that whole you know, that superiority complex that this generation of games was the best. Now, I certainly have my own preferences, uh, but even I can acknowledge that, you know, there are going to be people that think the games made on the Xbox One were the, or PlayStation 4, uh, were the best ever. And 30 years from now, they're going to be, you know, like, oh, I remember how great gaming was back then. Like, it's just a cycle that repeats. Um, so I kind of don't buy into that. Like, oh, you know, you don't like hard games. You don't know what you're talking about. Trial and error and cheap and enemy placement and all of that is, you know, totally fine and 100% okay. Like, I just don't quite buy into that. Um, otherwise, games would still be that way. So, Super Meat Boy and plus examples of trial and error, uh, you know, really evolved and matured in a way that's fun and rewarding. Um, and then something like New Super Mario Brothers U that really avoids all of those, some of those weird quirks that are very specific to mid-90s platformers. So, thank you for the comment. The next comment comes from poke press i always wonder when i read your name i'm like man i wonder if i ever met this guy at a pokemon tournament i played pretty hardcore for about three years and traveled the midwest do you think aladdin would be a good remastered candidate like what was done for ducktales i suppose the main problem would be replacing robin williams they could use dan castellianetta who did genie's voice in the tv show for any new material they would need uh so kind of expanding I do have DuckTales Remastered. I have a physical copy for the Xbox 360, and uh, I did enjoy playing it, but I for, there was something there that I didn't enjoy as much as playing the NES version. Um, and the same goes for Maverick Hunters for the PlayStation Portable, which is a 3D, 3D remake of Mega Man X. Something about playing that game didn't feel as special, uh, didn't feel as right as playing the game on the Super Nintendo. And I can't quite place it, but I think it's... It is the the pixel perfect nature of those two games. Uh, so, like you know, Mega Man's blaster, you know, fills up four or six or whatever pixels across the screen and just the way all of those exact numbers kind of match each other you know how many pixels high they jump um all of those types of things i don't i I think they're very specific to that low resolution nature and when i play ducktales remastered uh something about 
that perfection is lost and the game doesn't quite feel as smooth for me um, even though I could probably line them up and I'm sure they'd be pretty close um, and Maverick Hunters especially like something doesn't quite fit and I don't know what it is because it should work uh, so I would not like to see Aladdin remastered as the same game uh, I would like to see a sequel I think that would be a lot of fun uh, taking you know the the 23 years of what we've learned about game development game design and you know uh, the evolution of the genre uh, and, and sticking to that classic hand-drawn 2D style, I think that would be really exciting, but I don't think I would get very excited about just a straight port with high-res graphics. Uh, for me, it doesn't quite work. Uh, what worked for Aladdin in 1993 doesn't translate exactly today, uh, but I would love to see a sequel. I would love to see I don't think it's ever going to happen. I would love to see 2D platformers kind of come back into uh, existence. We know that it's not <clears throat> New Super Mario Brothers U, fantastic game, one of my favorites of all time, uh, did not sell consoles. So I think that ship has passed. But if there was a way to do for them to do it very cheaply um, so that they could sell a low number and still recoup their investment and make a profit, uh, if somebody could figure that out or have the desire, I think that would be really exciting. Uh, I would love to play a Virgin Games style platformer uh, redone for today. Thank you for the question. All right, next comes from Will Strop, 2008. Uh, this was in response to me calling the Atari 2600 the most iconic home console ever. He says, second most iconic. When you call the Atari 2600 the most iconic home console ever released, it makes me wonder on what technicality or qualifier you excluded the NES, an even more iconic console, from consideration. So I don't... <laughs> This is <laughs> for any of you that have a YouTube channel. Um, and once you hit about 2,000 to 3,000 subscribers, these are the types of comments that you can expect. Uh, every single statement that you ever make will be put under the microscope um, and you will offend people for the most mundane things. Um, so I decided to take this literally. I think the reason why it's the most iconic home console ever is because it was the first one to sell 40 million units. And I think that is pretty damn impressive. Uh, I suspect if we look back at the other consoles released in the late 70s, early 80s, I'm going to be willing to bet that none of them even came close to 40 million. Um, obviously, in the U.S., the Atari 2600 was, was a huge success, basically creating the home console market, uh, evolving it past, you know, Pong clones and really making it something special. Not the first game console to have cartridges, not the first successful home console or computer, I'm sure, uh, but the most iconic, I would stand by that all day long. Does that mean there aren't other iconic home consoles? Uh, no. The NES resurrected gaming in the U.S. and then, of course, went on to sell 40 million units or whatever. However many it sold, uh, pretty big deal. Uh, the PlayStation, uh, obviously an iconic console. This was successful worldwide, not just pockets, not just Europe or not just Japan worldwide. Uh, I think the PlayStation was the first console that kind of grew up. Uh, so while all of us you know, were gaming as children, the PlayStation followed us into adulthood, and I think that was pretty important 100 plus million units pretty big deal uh the playstation 2 i think is a an iconic console because uh, i think that's when gaming stopped being a nerdy hobby and started becoming mainstream like music and movies so again iconic huge important next comment comes from 
Grain JB. Long live HD DVD. I too have a decent collection. I also use my 360 player on my Windows computer. Works well. Great show. Thanks. Um, I loved HD DVD. I want to say it came out in 2005. It's kind of a blur for me now. Maybe it came out in 2006. Does that seem more accurate? Yeah, it probably came out in 2006, maybe April of 2006, and then Blu-ray came out in June? That could be. Could be off on those. I'm just pulling them off the top of my head. Uh, but this was something, uh, this was probably the last format war or console war or electronics war of any kind that I cared about in any way, shape, or form. Uh, I'm the proud owner of a Wii U, and I don't care that it sold poorly and uh, was not a success. Doesn't bother me one bit. I don't need to argue with people trying to justify that it's, you know, something more than it is. Um, but HDD, HD DVD, and Blu-ray uh, was something that I was very interested in. I bought an HD DVD player at launch. Um, I have, I think, three of the four launch titles that were out that day. Uh, I remember going to Best Buy um, that after work on that Tuesday or Thursday or whenever it came out, getting a player. Uh, they had, th- I think, they only had two of the movies um, on a table at the front of the store. It wasn't even by the movies. Uh, the movies were like displayed on this weird table at the front of the store, and I just grabbed one. I think it was Last Samurai still have that copy and promptly took it home hooked it all up and watched my very first high definition movie now i want to say there was digital vhs d theater something like that it was a vhs format that did 1080i so it used the tape as a digital storage medium and it streamed 1080i video um but hd dvd you know did full 1080p and uh had all of the had new codecs that were beyond MPEG-2 on the DVD, and then it also increased the audio capabilities with uh, the Dolby True HD and DTS Master Audio. I have not uttered those words in a long time. I'm surprised I remember remember them. Uh, What I really dug about HD DVD, in 2006, HD DVD was the superior format. Uh, Blu-ray could do 50 gigabytes instead of 30, but in every other capacity, HD DVD was a far more thoughtful, it was a far more thoughtful platform it was cheaper and it just worked a lot better. Uh, discs were cheaper to manufacture because they used the same format as DVD, only the, the metal layer in between the two pieces of plastic was more dense. Uh, but otherwise, you could make HD DVDs on a normal, you know, in a normal DVD assembly line. Uh, Blu ray is kind of like the opposite of a CD. If you look at the side of a CD, you'll see the data is at the very top. If you look at a DVD, it's in the middle. And if you look at a Blu ray, the data is at the very bottom. Um, and then HD DVD was just like DVD. It was in the middle. Um, so the discs were cheaper to make. And then they had some mandatory features uh, at the time that made it better than Blu-ray. Um, and that included mandatory internet connection, which is something the Blu-ray didn't do. I want to say it had mandatory storage, oh, but I can't quite remember, um, which was important. I don't even know why. Saving chapter selections and things like this. Probably things that didn't matter, but it seemed interesting at the time. Mandatory internet, mandatory storage and uh, it had a mandatory second uh, video decoder uh, so that meant it could do picture in picture uh, on the fly and blu-ray couldn't if they wanted to do picture in picture on blu-ray it had to be a second video stream with that's basically the picture in picture as part of the video where the hd dvd standard uh you had every single player had two video decoders so that meant when 300 the movie 300 came out uh, on hd dvd there was this awesome picture in picture commentary where they had the unedited 300 
with all the blue screen and stuff on the background on the screen. So you could see what it looked like in real life, and then you could see all the CG on the screen. Uh, but Blu-ray couldn't do that. So the first run of 300 on the on Blu-ray just didn't have this awesome picture-in-picture feature that was really fascinating. Um, and then Blu-ray, I want to say, uses JavaScript uh, for its menus or something like JavaScript, uh, which really sucks. And uh, HD DVD used basically web technologies uh, for its menu system. Now, if you if you ever you well on blu-ray right there's a lot of movies where you can't really do anything you can hit pause and there's a bar at the bottom that shows you how far you are in the movie and maybe if you're lucky a very limited menu or if there is a menu it completely boots you out of the movie and if you have an old blu-ray player like i do it's very slow to load and very clumsy hd dvd other than the players booting up slow once that process is over they're actually very quick and in every HD DVD movie you buy, the entire menu is available to you at all times. Um, Blu-ray, a lot of times, if the special features are 480p, you don't have access to a menu at all. Uh, in HDVD, HD DVD, you have access to everything at all times, and it moves a lot smoother, more efficient. It just works a lot better. Uh, JavaScript is kind of overkill for a interactive uh, movie type of overlay, I don't know, experience. Um, so in my opinion, back in 2006, HD DVD was better for those reasons. Uh, nowadays, it really doesn't matter. Processors are, you know, really fast. Tools are very mature. Um, you know, obviously they can make Blu-rays for a reasonable price now. So a lot of those things don't matter now, 10 years later. But in 2006, I was pretty interested uh, and I really wanted that format to win. As silly as that sounds. Alrighty, so moving along, I have a couple of Atari games I wanted to talk about because uh, I don't think I'm going to do videos on them anytime soon. Um, I've purchased a ton of Atari 2600 games over the last five or six months, uh, mostly because they're dirt cheap, 99 cents or you know, a majority of them are a dollar. Like it, I can go into any store and there's a pile of Atari games for a buck a piece. Um, these I paid more than a dollar for because there are some good ones. But I did a video a couple weeks ago, basically. The five good Atari 2600 games, uh, Atari games that I've really enjoyed over the, the past five, six years that I think anybody could enjoy today. And then after that, of course, everybody gave me their choices, their picks of games that they really dig on the Atari 2600. So I compiled like a list of like 30 recommendations. Then I crossed out all the ones that use the paddle controller. Um, somebody's going to point me in the right direction to find a working or refurbished paddle controller, but the two or three that I've owned are garbage and didn't work. Um, so I just stayed away from those. But I found a couple. Uh, the first one... This is Frostbite by Activision for the Atari 2600. It's about a $9 to $10 game if you buy this on eBay. I can't decide if this is a good game or a great game. I'm going to have to keep playing it to kind of figure that answer out. This plays like Frogger, where you're basically jumping on moving platforms over a body of water, uh, but it also mixes in Qbert. So when you jump on these rows of platforms, they change color, and when they... Yeah, and as they change color, a piece of an igloo in the corner slowly builds itself. Once you turn all the ice one color, then you have to bounce back to turn them all the other colors so that the igloo keeps building. So you're basically sort of playing like Frogger and Cubert, where you're trying to jump across all of these things, but you're also trying to change their colors so that you can complete a second objective. I still can't decide if mixing these two genres is a great idea or a good idea. Um, if it works, I'm still not sure. kind of feels like one 
too many game concepts kind of bungled together, but maybe I'll kind of see the brilliance as I keep playing, or maybe I will never get there and just decide it's a good game, but not not my favorite. Uh, this game, on the other hand, Frogger, again, about an 8 to eight to $10 game. Man, you can't see that at all. There we go, Frogger. Frogger on the 2600, on the other hand, uh, just might be my very favorite game on the Atari 2600. Now, I'm not that experienced in Frogger. This isn't, I don't own any other ports or remakes on any other system. I'm aware of it. I've probably played it in an arcade as a kid. I know what it is and how it works. You know, there's the funny joke in Seinfeld, like the whole nine yards. Um, but somebody pointed this out to me and I did buy it. And uh, I think this might surpass... Uh, an Activision shooter. The name escapes me. Man, totally escapes me. This might be my new favorite Atari 2600 game. If I've ever played a game that totally defies what I thought the Atari 2600 could do, this is it. Um, there are so many different shapes, and these shapes all look really good on the screen at once. Like, I can't even really understand how it was possible. Uh, but the, you know, the wizards or whatever that programmed this game figured it out. And this is an awesome playing game. And Frogger's really, really good. Of course, the bottom half of the screen, you need to get to the middle while avoiding traffic the top half of the screen works in the exact opposite way where then you need to jump on the things while avoiding the water uh, and then get your frog to this little cave at the top of the screen now i'm not a frogger expert by any means i just said that um, but um, when you're on the logs and stuff in the water in this version you loop to the other side of the screen which i think is unique to the atari 2600 version uh, makes the game a little easier and uh, yeah just the sounds the gameplay it's responsive it's beautiful it gets very challenging very quickly and uh, just an absolutely lovely game and yeah that's all i have to say about that if you're looking again for a 2600 game and you think you don't like the 2600 or games that old give frogger a try i if it gets better than frogger then i'm just i'm not aware of it uh, this of course is going to bring us to the cheap games segment of today's program collecting games can be very expensive but it doesn't have to be so today i'm gonna so on this segment i'm gonna look at a couple games that'll cost you five dollars or less uh, so i'm gonna cheat again uh, on tonight's episode or today's episode both of these games hover between the five six dollar range you could probably find them for cheaper locally if it's been sitting on a shelf for a while uh, might not have the right price on it or a rummage sale or maybe even ebay uh, there might be a copy or two there for you but the first one is the jungle book this is um for the Sega Genesis. I don't have the Super Nintendo version. From what I understand, it's a different game or a slightly different game. Uh, but I own this on the Sega Genesis, one of the two games that I ever got brand new for the Sega Genesis, the other being Toy Story. So I've been playing this game for about 20 years now. Um, I've beat this game on Monday, beat it on Tuesday. Um, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. I've beaten it three times. So I guess Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, uh, I've beat this game. Hoping after this show, I'll beat it a fourth time and then uh, we'll have a review on Saturday or Sunday. Uh, but this is actually a really lovely platformer. Now, Virgin Games made a lot of great games for the Sega Genesis in particular. Um, this was a company that was, uh, the games anyway, were sort of led by David Perry, who went on to form Shiny Entertainment and make Earthworm Jim. Uh, the uh, music... The music director or whatever at this company was Tommy Tellerico, uh, who has had a long, successful career uh, in video game music. And The Jungle Book definitely fits right in line you know, with what those two were producing at the time. Uh, so this is kind of like a collect-a-thon platformer 
a collectathon platformer before there were collectathon platformers. Uh, so basically, you have to collect a certain amount of gems before you can reach the exit of the level. Uh, but it's beautiful for one. Great looking Genesis game. Uh, the music is outstanding. Again, I don't think Virgin used the normal um, development kit sound engine that came with the Sega Genesis development kit gems I think it was called I think they made their own um, and therefore for an American developed uh, Genesis game this sounds outstanding uh, it opens with some awesome piano it has a ton of great drum drums in it and uh, a lot of great horns in it as well and then it just plays really well uh, if all, every game that I've played that's kind of jungly where you have to climb vines and swing and do all that sort of thing this game does it smoother and more responsive than any other I've ever played so uh, I've had this for 20 years. I don't know what was paid for. Probably 20 bucks at Shopco or something. Uh, but get it. Jungle Book on the Genesis. Fantastic. Uh, the next game again is in that 5 to $6 range. This is Keystone Capers on the Atari 2600. Um, so like I said, I've been on a pretty big Atari 2600 and original Xbox kick lately. Uh, just because it's easy for me to find games that are very, very cheap. So I paid about $5 not about i paid five dollars for this there it is 4.99 and this is another game that really blew me away on the atari 2600 i have never heard of this game before um, and i'm totally blown away it reminds me of on the xbox there was a party game at launch called fusion frenzy and in that was a mini game called twisted system and all you did during twisted system uh, was duck and jump and when you're playing that with three of your friends got a couple of beers it is some of the most fun i've ever had playing a video game twisted system on fusion frenzy all you do is jump and duck and it's outstanding uh, that's what this reminds me of now it's a little more complicated than that because you have to run uh basically across the screen go up a staircase run the other way trying to catch a bad guy uh, but that's what you're doing you're jumping over things and you're ducking under things and something about that very simple mechanic like clicks with me like you wouldn't believe like this is one of those games that i can just zone out i'm just going through the levels trying to react as quickly as i can to what i just saw on the screen so that i don't have to stop running and i'm just jumping and ducking and it's outstanding it's also a really good looking atari 2600 game it's not you know a black background with a few shapes uh it sort of looks like a shopping mall which is what it's supposed to look like uh, a lot of complex shapes on the screen so it looks nice sounds nice but more importantly it's just addicting as hell so check it out keystone capers on the atari 2600 the jungle book on the sega genesis then of course frostbite and frogger also on the atari 2600 so that is going to wrap things up for this episode if you are watching this and you'd like to listen to it like a normal podcast i've got a link to the rss feed or itunes or google play in the description below and if you are listening to the show and you'd like to watch the video uh, or watch any of the other content i produce each and every week check out the youtube channel youtube.com slash implant games and until next time have a great week <laughs>